0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Man, a lot happens in one year. It's uh, really amazing to look back on one year of our lives and realize how many significant things happened. How much work, how many ways God showed up in our lives. It's, uh, it's good for us pause at the turning of a year, even though in one sense it's just the turning of another day on a calendar. These moments of turning corners are significant for us. Uh, before I launch into the sermon, I, I just feel like we need to pray because I, I know that um, a lot of hard work and time has gone into preparing the service and the sermon, but I'm not always sure where we are when you're ready to receive and hear. And there are a lot of things that can get in the way of us receiving God's word. If you have functioning ears, you can hear God's word being preached, but that's different from receiving it deep down. And there's all kinds of things that get in the way of that, discomfort, pain, ingratitude, unforgiveness, unconfessed sin. There's so many things that can create a hedge between us and the power of God that wants to break through. So I want to invite you to just pause with me for a second, and let's pray. And I'm going to ask you to pray for yourself as you are about to hear God's word proclaimed, that he would give you a moment of humility and openness to what he wants to say. God, your word is powerful, but we also admit that there are powerful things that can form resistance In our hearts, we can have pain and bitterness, unforgiveness, ingratitude. There may be sins we have not confessed. And so these things stand as a barrier between you and us. And while our ears may hear, we long for our hearts to be open and to receive your word. We believe your word has power, and it could even have the power to change everything for us. And So we pray this morning, as your word is proclaimed and received, that power would go forth from you, and we would hear with our ears and with our whole lives, and we would respond. Clear the path for your word now. Tear down any barrier that stands between you and us and help us to receive, and to respond, in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a note of uh, gratitude. How many of you guys know where this picture was taken? Can you guess? (laughs) No. It was taken in Flagstaff, Arizona, where our church plant exists. So our Brothers and sisters in Arizona are dealing with this and 22-degree temperatures right now, and we are looking at 60 degrees today. For some, I hope that will make you thankful, at least by comparison. It makes me a little envious. I wish I were there instead of here. I I don't like this weather around this time of year. I want it to be cold and snowy. Don't get mad at me. But that's what I feel like winter should be in Chicago. I don't know what this is, but I wore my light jacket, and that's messed up. Hopefully, though, my bitterness is your gratitude because it's nice to have warm weather for some of you who are starting to feel the weight of winter pressing down. And it has nothing to do with my sermon. I just wanted to start you off in a good mood. (laughs) Today's Recommitment Sunday, or at least that's what we call it at Harvest, it has been our tradition on the last Sunday of the year to rally our whole church and call us to recommit our full lives to Jesus in one direction in particular as we face the coming year. And this year, as I I just kind of sat with God and listened, the thing I felt being really strongly impressed on my heart was this message. And the title of the message is, Can I Get a Witness? The call that I want to issue is the same call the resurrected Jesus gave to his followers shortly before he ascended into heaven. Here's what he said in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What I want to call us to as we face 2020 is to renew our commitment to be witnesses for Jesus in our world. You know, in our times, the word witness is largely a courtroom term, right? Uh, When you hear witness, you think about a legal case. And there are at least two very important kinds of witnesses that you'll find in a courtroom. One kind is the expert witness. He's the guy with two or three PhDs or the, the woman who has... 30 years of experience in blood spatter or something like that. And so they they have no direct connection to the event that is on trial, but they have lots of technical information that they can count on to build a case. And so this is a person who has lots of knowledge, no firsthand experience, but they're called in to provide background. And that's the way that most of us think God wants us to witness, is to have all the answers, to be able to answer all the doubts and counter all the arguments. That's not the kind of witness most of us are called to be. Thank God for the Ravi Zechariases of the world who try really hard to play that role. It's not an easy role to play. That doesn't mean it can't be done. It's just not the primary role most of us are called to, is to be an expert witness. But there's a second kind of witness. And you see these all the time in the evening news. It is the eyewitness. And that person's only qualification to be in front of the camera they have no technical knowledge, or at least they, they don't need to. The only qualification is they were there. And they're so excited. You can see it when they're getting their 15 seconds of fame. Oh, I saw it. I was there. I don't know anything else maybe in the whole world, but I know this. I know what I saw. And they will stand and deliver with such confidence. I love watching those moments. And for that person, the only reason they are being interviewed The only qualification is that they witnessed with their own eye. And as a result, in a courtroom, when they take the stand, they're playing a very important role. They are the linkage between those who want to get to the truth of something and the actual event that they're trying to investigate. There's an actual thing that happened, and only a small handful of people witnessed it, but there are many others who need to know what actually happened there. That's what a court case is all about. It's what an investigation is. And the eyewitness represents a critical linkage between that event and all those seeking the truth about it. What I like about Acts 1-8, and the reason that um, I think this image plays so well into that, is that this is the nature of all witness. is It begins with an actual experience, and then it radiates out into an experience into expanding circles of people who are touched by the witness. I think this ripple that is formed by a drop of water hitting a still pond is a great image for the way that the Christian witness and really any movement is supposed to be about. Now, in Acts 8 you you'll notice that it's primarily about geographic expansion, but if you really look at it, it's more than geography. It is also about relational expansion. In other words, Christian witness begins with us actually having an encounter or an experience with someone or something that is real, and then we begin to tell others about it. And I know this is a topic that typically makes Christians feel heavy-hearted, but it's interesting how in every other facet of our lives, if we get to talk about something we actually experienced, it doesn't take much prodding, does it? I mean, just look at the enthusiasm of your average eyewitness on the evening news. They can't. Some of them are like trying to shove each other, box each other. Like, no, no, I was there. Here's how it actually happened. They can't wait to tell everybody what happened. If you ever witness something significant that happens, you will tell everybody. It will be what you work every conversation around to in every bar at every dinner table for the next two, three months. Oh my gosh, I can't believe, like if you were in Woodfield when that kid drove the car through Woodfield, if you happened to be in the mall that day and saw that, I promise you, you did not talk about anything else for like three months. You know why? Because I was there. And no one has to prod you. Uh, Go go ahead, tell the story about how you almost got run over by that kid. You will find some way to make it about that. Oh, that's a nice frame. Where'd you buy it? At a mall? Let me tell you a story about the mall. And because you're trying to talk about it, you can't wait to talk about it. You have this book or a movie, some obscure thing that was like a diamond in the rough, and someone else mentions it, and you can't wait to say, oh, I saw that too. Oh my gosh, right? Wasn't it so good? You want to see passion in testimony and witness, just ask someone who went to University of Michigan How the Wolverines are doing in whatever sport happens to be. Look, frost, synchronizer, it doesn't matter. It's like rabies or something. It's not normal. It's not normal. That, to me, is witness. I want to talk about this ripple effect. And it begins with the epicenter. Our own experience. This This is what we say is the indispensable ingredient of all witness. If you weren't there, say nothing. It doesn't matter what we have to say about a thing. If the call is to bear witness to the real event and that real event did not happen for us, then our words about it are just opinion, aren't they? I'd say the closest thing we have in everyday life to a testimony is the review. You guys know what I'm talking about? In a world full of options and scams, isn't it true that we've come to absolutely rely on the power of firsthand testimony, reviews from people who actually use it. How many of you guys watch Unbox Therapy on YouTube? I, I don't know what that guy's name is. I just know that he gets a lot of views, he makes a lot of money, and he gets free awesome stuff sent to him. But I have come to absolutely count on this guy's reviews. I found his assessment of products to be really trustworthy. He takes new products, opens them up, tries them out, and he tells you his experience with them. And I'll tell you what, when, when you want to buy Bluetooth wireless earbuds and you go online to start researching, there are like a thousand choices now. In fact, there's almost nothing you can buy where there isn't just a multitude of choices. Thank you, China. I mean... <laughs> You know, like half of that stuff is, the, and it's like there's so many, you don't know where to begin. What if Amazon didn't have those little star ratings? You just had to look at the picture and go, hmm, do I feel trusting? Can you imagine how hard, how many times you'd have to return things? And so we, abso- whether it's a product or a, a service, we absolutely rely on first hand experience of others when we're looking into something that we're going to make an investment in. I first experienced Dintai Fung in Sydney, Australia on August 2nd, 2009. I don't know about you, but I don't remember a lot of dates, but I remember that date. <laughs> Double meaning, that date with my wife, but also that date. It was one of the most significant meals we ever had. It was so good that after we ate it, we're like, we don't need to eat again. That, that's We're done. I think... I think if that's the last thing we ate, we could say we lived on this earth and are ready to go home. And we became passionate evangelists for Din Tai Fung. At that time, I didn't realize they had more locations than just Sydney, Australia. But if you're ever in Australia, go to this place. It wasn't just hype. Standing behind my excitement was a real experience that I could not suppress. I wanted people that I cared about to have it. And if I didn't like you, I never told you about Dintai Funk because I'm like, I don't give you, you know, but that's the whole thing is you just cannot wait to tell the story because everyone you love, you want them to have that pleasure. It wasn't hype, it was revelation of something real I couldn't hold to myself. Now I could rattle off all kinds of facts, technical knowledge about Dintai Funk. I could tell you that it is actually a Taiwan-based corporation. I could tell you that they specialize in Xiaolong Bao, which is soup dumplings. I could tell you they have 166 locations in 13 countries. I've read the list of all 166 locations. I know that there're 41 in China and Hong Kong alone. But you can get all that from the website. The power of my testimony is not in rattling off the facts about it. It's about telling you what it was like to eat there. And you see my eyes light up. Look how happy we were, and this was before we ate. Okay? I mean, it's just something about that place. It's magical. So the power of my testimony is not because I know all about it. It's because I experienced it, and it touched me, in the deepest place. I mean, that's, that's a stupid an illustration, maybe, but it, it begins to emotionally tell you a little bit about the nature of Christian witness. That's what is being talked about here in John, I'm sorry, it says Acts 1, 8 on top. That's a, one of those cut and paste typos. It's 1 John 1, 1 through 2. For the three of you taking notes, it's 1 John 1, 1 to 2. You three are going to grow so much in 2020. All right. Here's what, here's what John says about their testimony. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. You can't mistake it. You can't miss it. What John is saying is the nature of Christian witness is not the telling of facts about a historical event. It is bearing witness to something we actually experienced. And what he's trying to say is you can't just experience and touch and see every event, but this is a person they're bearing witness to. We ate with this man. We smelled his burps. We joked with him. We made fires with him. Some of you are like, Jesus burped? Yes, of course he burped. He was human. This is what our testimony is based on. It's not about rattling off every fact of doctrine and theology, systematic argument. Our primary Christian witness is telling about our experience of our encounters with the living God. That doesn't mean there's no place for theology and doctrine. Those things matter. But people were saved as they encountered the living Christ. On the day most people are saved, they don't know a lick of doctrine. They come to learn it over time. But they want to learn it because they met someone who changed everything. I've only met a few people who were saved because someone argued and argued and argued and argued with them until they were finally convinced. But even then, when you really press them, they'll say, The day I finally relented, things were going on in my life, and I just felt something. What if the last time I'd eaten at Dintai Fung was August 2nd, 2009? That's 10 years ago. How seriously would you take my testimony then? Because a lot of stuff can happen to a restaurant in 10 years. Like, you could go there and it's not even there anymore. Thankfully, I went many times since then. Uh, And this is my last time, November 17th, just over a month ago, with Chris. Our wives were there too, but I don't know why they weren't in the picture. Um, that was in Seattle, November 17th. I've eaten there at least eight, I think by my count, it might be more like 10 times on three continents. And it has now become my commitment. In fact, I have a note file on my phone with every one of the 166 locations and they are in countries and cities I frequent. So it is now my commitment that anytime I go to a place where they have a Din Tai Fung, I will make every effort to go there. If they ever open one up in Chicago, I'm going to need a raise because I'm going to go bankrupt. (laughs) See, this is what I love about that one chorus in the song we just sang, Build My Life. It's show me, then fill me, then lead me out to those around me. It's got to happen in that order. You cannot hear this oppressive call to witness unless you have something to witness to. And that may be why I believe evangelism is such a heavy-hearted topic for so many Christians. It's because for many of us, the glory of God, our, our encounters with God, our most significant moments of knowing God was real, feeling it in our bones, they are echoes of distant memories. Not yesterday's reality, but 10 years ago, I remember when. I felt so close to God. I saw him. I knew he was real. How long ago was the last time you felt it in your bones that the living God is alive, he's real, he loves you, and he wants everyone to know him? When is the last time you felt that in this overwhelming kind of way? For too many of us, that is the echo of a very distant memory. And that's the reason that witness is dulled because for witness to be powerful, for testimony to be powerful, it must be driven by ongoing renewed experience. And so I continue to go to Ding Tai Fung just to make sure it was as good as I remember. I'll tell you, one time we went to Vancouver or Toronto, we went to a place and an hour in we're like, wait, this says Ding Tai Fung. What a difference a G makes. It was a knockoff, but clearly someone had been to every dint I flung around, and they copied it perfectly. This place is so good; even the imitation is better than most restaurants. We finished our meal. We're like, "Well, we'll take it because we'd even, it was unbelievable." And so we keep seeking it out because it was so good. I don't want to coast on the fumes of yesterday's glory. I want it today. Our witness is most impactful where we're continuing now to live in that reality and not just remembering when. Do you know that the Greek word for witness is martus? It's the same word from which we derive the English word martyr, right? We use the word martyr generally to talk about somebody who is self-pitying and dramatic. Oh, don't be such a martyr. You know where the word martyr comes from? So many Christians willingly gave up their lives in the face of persecution, they continued to witness for Jesus even when it cost them their lives. There was no witness protection program in the early church. You would be killed for taking the stand, and they took it. And because so many Christians believed so deeply that they would be willing to die, and often with a smile on their face, the word witness and the words for when someone will die for their convictions, came to be the exact same word. So there's a question for us. How real is your ongoing experience of God? Real enough that if it came to it and there was no witness protection promise, would you give up your life for him? We don't ask that question in church much anymore. I heard it almost every week growing up, though. They would tell us stories about people just cruelly killed for their faith, and yet they held fast. And I've often wondered, could I do that? you know how you can figure out what you'd be willing to die for? You look at what you are living for. What you truly live for is that thing which you would ultimately die for. And what would those around you, never mind what you would say, what would those closest to you say you live for? You'd clear everything to have this. You see, our witness, and I don't say any of this to produce guilt or regret, it's to just remind you, there is someone real. I'm not just telling you to conjure him up, I'm saying he's right there inviting you every day to experience him. We don't have to build up hype, he exists, he's alive, he wants you to know him and experience him, and every day is a new opportunity to have that encounter. And if you do, you have the beginnings of the most powerful kind of witness that exists. Let me move on. Then he says, from that powerful place of your own experience at the epicenter, the next ring out is your Jerusalem. By starting in the city where they were, he's saying begin with those already right in front of your face. Those closest to you. I consider this, relationally speaking, my Jerusalem is my friends and my family. They're the people I see at least once a week and usually more often than that. When he says start in Jerusalem, he's saying look right up and who do you see? That is your first place of witness. Witness is something we do most often to those we see most often. You may not realize that that's what you're doing, but every day your life is bearing witness to who you are, to what you truly believe and value. Every day, whether you intend to or not, and if you have children, you know this. Most of what you teach your kids, or at least most of what they learn from you, is not what you try to teach, it's what you lived. Jeannie loves to tell the story about when Noah was four years old, and he was imitating me, and he picked up a little lunchbox. And he goes, here I go to the video store. And I'm like, on it! Is that what he thinks Daddy does all day? He's go to the video store? Now, it's a risk for me to share that with you, because that's jacked up for a pastor to be known by his own kid as the guy who goes to the video store. I had to change my ways after that. I started streaming instead, so... I'm kidding, I'm kidding. You know, there's a saying that the cobbler's children have no shoes. I learned that also because as a doctor's kid, I was like, Dad, do I have to pay you to get you to take a look at this thing that I've got going on? This pinky's so jacked up, and it's jacked up because I kept going, Dad, I'm pretty sure it's broken. It's not broken. It's fine. Aspirin, orange juice. I don't know why a doctor's kid doesn't get the care that they deserve. But then... You know, there's a little reputation about pastor's kids, too. not at our church, of course. Our pastor's kids are stellar. But at other churches, you know, there's a reputation about PKs, right? Like, oh, the pastor's kid needs to be more pastored. Why is that? Because it's interesting how that thing you do... I mean, just take a look at a dentist kid. They'll usually have good teeth. I don't know why. That's the one profession. Take care of their own. But mostly... We think of that thing we do as that thing we do for others outside. And those closest to us get our sloppiest. I don't think there is any justification for being sloppy with those we're closest to. The most reliable and true witness of who you are and how you see God is seen by the people closest to you. Witnessing is not some activity we do outside with strangers. It is first a thing we learn to do in our homes. What our children, what our siblings, what our parents think about God by watching our lives, that is our foundational, fundamental witness. And what I've learned is you can try to teach lots of things, But sometimes there's an unintended message we're sending out. Let me give you a common example. I've seen that so many of us grew up with dads who never showed up to any of our games or concerts or recitals. And so we're trying so hard not to be that dad. And we're at everything. Even if that falls on Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, I'm going to be a good dad. I'll be at every one of those things. I will support you. And I affirm that 100%. I don't say this in a spirit of judgment at all. And every now and then, that's got to happen. But what else are you saying to your kid if your commitment to worship God on the Lord's day is consistently brushed aside because they have a game? Now, you're teaching them one good thing. I affirm that. I'm your dad, and I am present in your life. You matter to me, you're a priority to me. But what are you teaching without realizing you're teaching? I can go to church anytime, but you matter to me. And in that statement, what will they see of who Jesus is? Please understand, there are times when the team is really counting on you. It's part of your witness to them. Let's not find that outlier case and build a life point, point of view around it. What I'm saying is there are times when we are too cavalier about it. It's not like we want to be Pharisees and say, on Sunday you have to be a church, every Sunday or we'll judge you. What I'm saying is, when you miss, miss for a reason. Because that commitment, there's so little that's left sacred in our world that we guard with zeal. There's so few things left like that. They should be honored. There's so many other examples of this where we are trying to affirm a good thing, but we're not realizing what else we're saying. So the real thing about witness is not what kind of good person are you, but what does your life reveal about the value and worth of Jesus? What will those closest to you see through your life about how worthy he is of everything? That's all I'm going to say about that your family and your closest friends will know your true witness. So if you're wondering what kind of witness you have, begin there and ask, what does my life communicate to you about the worth and value of Jesus to me? Jesus then says, as you begin with those right around you, life or the spirit of God will nudge you outward. It just happens. I am so thankful for faithful friends who have stayed here all 25 years with me. I mean, I just I cherish that so much, you have no idea. But life moves us on. Question is, as life moves us on, what goes on with us? We all scatter eventually, right? I mean, that just happens. But when we're moved, what else moves with us? Judea and Samaria is our societal context. It's our broader reach. Not just right around us, but around us. In Acts four, after a great persecution broke out in the church, Luke describes this. He says, the believers who were scattered through persecution preach the good news about Jesus wherever they went. I love the way he phrases that. It wasn't like they were going two places in order to preach the gospel. This wasn't a missionary program. It wasn't a trip. It was just as life moved them, the gospel moved with them. It was not a, a religious activity, but it was a way of life. Philip, who was one of the seven deacons selected in Acts chapter 6, as an example, he says, and as they all scattered, here's one guy named Philip. He went down into a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. That word proclaimed is highlighted because it it's English translating a Greek word, keruso, which is a very important word. It doesn't just mean he started telling people, like the guy next to him at the bar, hey, buddy. You look pretty sad. Can I tell you something? It can include that. But the word Caruso is more typified by guys like this guy. I think his name is Theo Mortimer. He was a town crier. And I think the year it says somewhere, uh, I'm not sure if, if it got cut off there, but a long time ago before radio and television, the way people, have you ever thought about this? How did you find out the news? Like, how many of you guys got pulled over because you were using your cell phone and you didn't realize that the laws had changed January 1, it's no longer legal to talk? And you remember several years back when that happened? So many people got pulled over and they're like going, how was I supposed to know? Well, that got me thinking, how did, in the age of internet and TV news and, and, and radio, how does anyone miss the news? But in the days before broadcast media, how did anyone find out important stuff? Well, eventually you heard about it, if it was important enough, because your neighbor or the town gossip told everybody. But how did that person find out? They find out through him. Guys like him would ride their bikes, and notice he has a horn. He would ride into the, the most public parts of each village or town, and he'd just blow the horn, blow the horn. And everyone got to know who that was, and especially the people who liked to be You know, the early reporters, they would rush out to the town square. Ooh, what is it? And then he would shout out at the top of his lungs, here's the news. Hear ye, hear ye, and tell the news. And then they were like, oh, the king has leprosy? And then they would run and tell, did you know the king has leprosy? And they would count on the, the rapid fire spread of gossip, but someone had to be the source of the news. That was the herald or the crier. And that's the exact word which describes what Philip was doing in Samaria. What I mean by that is not go to the Woodfield after church today and start shouting out. The bottom line message is the gospel, our witness of Jesus, was never intended to be something bottled up and held close to the vest. Here's another way of saying it. I hope you remember this phrase. Our faith is supposed to be personal, but it's not supposed to be private. That's something weird that has happened in American culture. Keep your politics and your religion to yourself. The politics, amen. Okay? I will be active as much as I can in the political arena, but I will not waste my time debating with people anymore. It's garbage time. It's just, you might as well burn it up. No one wants to have their minds changed anymore. You just gotta act. But faith, (laughs) faith was never supposed to be private. I don't know why we developed this idea, keep your faith to yourself. That's the most important thing about you. It's the thing you foundationally believe about reality, about the whole world. How are you supposed to keep that to yourself? Faith should be personal, but it should not be private. It was meant to be proclaimed. There's power in one person sharing news, especially good news, with someone else. Did you know that I didn't discover Din Tai Fung by myself? Calvin and Grace Chang told me about it. God bless you. You were the first evangelist to tell me because I, I said, hey, has anyone had any experience in Sydney? Oh, yeah, yeah, we have family. Where should we go to eat? And first thing right out of Calvin's mouth, Din Tai Fung. Did Tai what? Yeah, And he had to spell it out, and then we went and found it, and we're like, Calvin is a trustworthy human being. (laughs) Everything he says, I will believe now, because he pointed me towards this good thing. See, that's the important thing, is I didn't discover it by myself. I had no clue it even existed until someone shared the good news with me. Do you know that I didn't discover Jesus on my own either? I'm so thankful That one after another, faithful people in my life proclaimed Jesus to me. Here's another important point not to miss. Jesus says, go to all Judea and Samaria. That's really important. I'll spare you the details because I don't have the time, but suffice it to say, the Samaritans were people that the Jews looked down on religiously and racially. They had no time for the Samaritans. It was okay to hate Samaritans if you're a Jew. What's so interesting is Jesus includes Samaria in the call to bear witness. He says, don't you dare just go to your own tribe and proclaim the good news. That's like just telling your friends about your favorite restaurant. Tell everyone, especially go to those people that you have learned to hate, that your movement has rejected. Now, don't be too quick to pat yourself on the back. All of us have Samaritans in our lives. All of us. For most of us, the Samaritans in our lives are the ones that the church has traditionally rejected and marginalized. Looked down on, sneered at. People whose hands don't appear clean to us. Who who have beliefs we don't agree with. Who for decades, for centuries, it was okay to hate. Those are our Samaritans in the majority case and Jesus says you go to them and you bear witness to me among those that you hate. For some of us, the Samaritans, our Samaritans, are the religious establishment, are the upper class, ironclad trust fund having ultra whatever people those who seem to hold all the power and all the cards, and I will never share a good thing with them. Hate is hate no matter what coat it wears. Do you feel entitled to hate your Samaritans? Then on what leg do you stand when you shout from the rooftops, let's not hate just these people, because they deserve it? That's the misguided prejudice that everyone follows, because someone they respect told them, you hate those people, it's okay. They're worthless. They're not to be loved. They're not to be touched. I I marvel at the fact that Jesus ministered pretty much equally to Pharisees and to tax collectors and prostitutes. He was setting an example for us. I think he would rather have avoided the Pharisees, but he tried awfully hard to reach them. Who are your Samaritans And who is your Judea? And does everyone around you meet Jesus when they meet you in some way? i got to finish now, so I'll give you this last one quickly. The ends of the earth is our global context. Think about this. The only reason we have Christianity outside of Israel, even outside of the city of Jerusalem, was that at some point, Someone got moved by the Spirit of God or by forces outside their control to go from one country to another, and when they went, they brought the gospel with them. That's the only way we have Christianity. I think about people like Horace Underwood, who was one of the first missionaries to South Korea. You know, back in June of 2001, I traveled with a group of about 20 Korean-American pastors, and we did a tour of Korea just to see what we can learn spiritually from the motherland. I'll be honest, I didn't learn that much. <laughs> I actually came back kind of discouraged. But the most moving part of that trip for me was my visit to the Yang Jin Foreigners Jin Foreigner Cemetery in Seoul. This is a cemetery reserved for all the non-Koreans, the foreigners who died on Korean soil. and A good majority of them were missionaries. 83. It's a very small graveyard, but 83 of those tombstones belong to adult missionaries. But I think the part where, that just wrecked me was this part. 38 graves of children of missionaries. Most of them died almost upon landing of cholera, a disease rampant in Korea but to which there was no immunity among the Westerners who came. And I sat there for a really long time. I just kind of sat there thinking about, because my paternal grandmother was a direct beneficiary of the witness of people like this. My family line was violently interrupted by the good news of the gospel because my rabbit farming rural village grandmother heard about Jesus out of the blue. And when she met Jesus, she knew deep in her heart this was the truth. She waited all her life to hear. And when she met Jesus, nothing was held back. She gave herself more fully to Jesus than she had ever given herself to anyone or anything. That woman, that one simple uneducated woman is the foundational human pillar of an entire extended family of faith. In our family line, Jesus entered through her. But he reached her through people like this. And I kept thinking, if I knew that my newborn might die upon landing, would I have counted the cost too high and stayed home? What if those people had and my grandmother never heard? Where would I be right now? What kind of person might I be? And I was reflecting that it's been many, many years since a missionary went out from our church. We've had them. You're seeing some right here. But it's been years. And I was just chatting with this about someone over dinner at my house recently, and we realized one of the reasons for that is because growing up, we heard almost on a weekly basis, could God be calling you? Now, we're trying hard not to elevate missionary and pastor as some sort of super status among Christians, all right? And that's, that's an important thing for us to be mindful of. But we've maybe thrown out the baby with the bathwater. It's been years since we've issued that challenge, that invitation. So I'm going to issue it this morning. Listen to what the Lord might be saying to you through me right now. Could God be calling you to cross geographic and cultural boundaries, to be his witness in a faraway place. Let that sink in for just a second here. Don't move on. Don't say, I'm 45, I have a career, I have a family. Forget all of that. Just for a moment, let God actually talk to you because crazier things have happened. Maybe for some of you, you felt most alive when you're involved in overseas work, when you watch the gospel break new ground in faraway places. Maybe some of you, you just sense you were not really made for this place. You've never liked this culture, this society. But you found whenever you travel internationally, there's this cultural fluidity to you. You can eat anything, sleep anywhere, meet new people, learn new languages. There's just something in you. Maybe that's been stirring for a while. I don't know what God will use to pull you. But could it be that some of you in this room right now, whatever your age or situation, are being called? And I know your stories, some of you. That pull was there at once in your life. Very strong. Is it possible that God is stirring that up again? In the interest of time, I've got to move on and wrap this up. But if you pray that way with a truly open hand and say, God, are you calling me? I won't shout you down. If you really are, I'm ready to hear it. Could it be that he's calling you? That will be one of my favorite ways to say goodbye to you. Say, go with God. We're sending you. Bear witness in that faraway place. But if you're not called to go, then I think we are all together called to do everything we can to support and sustain those who have gone. On your way in, you received a half sheet. If you didn't get one of these, hopefully the extras that we have are back at the welcoming table. You can go pick one up. This is a half sheet, a very brief summary of our missionary partners. And I'm sure that hanging on your refrigerator or bulletin board somewhere at home you have support cards and letters and updates from others that you are close to who you support financially or through prayer. I want to suggest to you some practical ways you can really support and sustain them. One of them is if you pray but never given, let God tell you if that's something he wants you to start doing. If you have been giving the same amount for years and their situation on the ground has changed, consider praying god Can I reevaluate my giving level? Is it possible you're asking me to step up or even step down? I think it should always be a prayerful, intentional thing, this giving to to others. The others to send something, maybe a letter or a care package. Imagine if you were out there, how much you would long for home, just for a word or a Snickers bar or something, just a piece of the world you left behind that continues on without you. And pray. Here's something that I felt very strongly this week. As I pray for people overseas, I started praying this way. What would I want people back home praying for me if I switched places with them? I used to just pray systematically through the things they listed, but I also started praying more creatively. If I were in their place, how would I want people to be praying for me? And it's really opened up some interesting things that I've prayed for some of our supportive friends. And here's the last one. Would you? Consider investing some of your vacation time and dollars to go to the mission field and encourage one of our partners in person. You have no idea what it could mean to them. If you didn't go with an agenda, take me on a tour of all your work, show me everything and say, you just said, let's just hang out at your place. I just want to be with you, get to know you better, pray over your family, encourage you. What would that do for them what would that do for you some of our church members have done exactly that and it's really great to listen to them and see the excitement in their eyes as they come home and share about the amazing time they had encouraging our missionary partners in person i'm going to ask us to bow our heads and just respond now together Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to review the places, the levels of this ripple. As I call them out with eyes closed, I'm going to ask you to do something that we don't often ask you to do at our church. If this is something God is tugging on your heart, I'm going to ask you simply to stand as a gesture of commitment. Do you sense that God is telling you Forget about the witness first. I want you to witness me. Come meet me again. I miss you. I am every day here in the same place waiting for you. Do you hear God calling you to meet with him, to encounter him in a fresh, ongoing way? Are your memories of God too distant? Is he calling you to be a witness to your Jerusalem to the people closest to you to stop being sloppy stop being careless to be most of a witness to those you live with and around is he calling you to your Judea and Samaria to live your faith out loud not hidden away personal But not private is he challenging you to go to your Samaritans maybe for the first time and open your heart to people you've learned to hate or is he calling you to the ends of the earth so I'm gonna leave it there and I'm gonna give us just a minute to listen for the prompting and voice of God And I'm going to ask you to take a risk, not mindful of the eyes of others, but the eyes of your Savior on you. And if you sense the Lord leading you to recommit to any one of those things, I'm going to ask you quietly to just stand to your feet as a sign of response to him. And then I'd like to pray for you. So just take a minute. I want to thank you all who stood in response it's important for us when we feel God to respond to him it's not comfortable to stand but that simple gesture of discomfort is often our first step of recommitment what you committed to in your heart is between you and the Lord but I also want to remind you That a commitment made but not shared is often a commitment lost. And so I would encourage you to find someone you trust and respect. And share your commitment with them so that someone else in the world now knows what the Lord said and you responded to. Somehow that has power to bring us a little closer to that reality. God, we pray for all of us that at some point the message of our whole lives would become truly a revelation, a pointer to Jesus Christ. Teach us, Lord, to live our faith. Out loud and in public Lord Jesus, we pray for those who have stood up in response to you that that simple gesture of standing would represent the first step in a journey that will take them to really glorious new adventures, to a personal revival in their spirits to you becoming more real and they're getting to share you with many others. As we now invite the whole congregation to stand, we commit ourselves to you in 2020 as a church. You have shown yourself. We now want to rise to you in response and say, God, You have been so faithful. Make us more faithful to you. Let 2020 be a year of new vision and great renewal for all of us. In the name of Jesus.